welcome to Wisconsin DNR's Wild Wisconsin Off the Record Podcast. Information straight from the source. episode of Wisconsin DNR's Wild Wisconsin Off the Record podcast. So as a quick reminder for the people tuning in, we use this as a, as a really good way to kind of go more in depth on a lot of topics that, that you guys may have questions on. Uh, we do news releases, we do social media posts, we do other things like that, but we feel that podcasts are really the best way, especially with a topic that, like we're covering today, to really kind of go in depth um, help you guys get to know some of our staff, the work that they do. So we have got a very special one today. I think this is going to be one of our more popular episodes. Um, it's one that people have been asking for for quite a long time. So drum roll, please. Uh, today we are joined by Scott Walter, the DNR large carnivore ecologist, and we are going to be talking gray wolves in Wisconsin, an incredibly hot topic um, among outdoorsmen, people in the city, all types of folks. So we're going to hopefully cover all those perspectives um, and just really give you a high-level overview of kind of where we've been with wolves, where we are now, looking forward to the future. So uh, we're really excited to get to get to, get to do this. Uh, we hope you're going to enjoy it. So uh, without further ado, Scott, maybe do you want to give just a quick intro, kind of what you do at the DNR, why you enjoy it, kind of where it all hits home for you? Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, really nice to be here with you today, Sawyer. A um, little bit about me, I guess. Uh, my name is Scott Walter. I'm the large carnivore specialist for the DNR now. Um, and I think like a lot of wildlife professionals, uh, I got into the field because my background sort of led me into nature. I'm a Wisconsin native. I grew up uh, essentially, a, like many people, a rural Wisconsin kid. Uh, my earliest days were filled with everything from uh, throwing hay bales to catching bluegills, shooting squirrels, and became captivated with wildlife at a very early age. Uh, and actually, as I matured and started to focus my interest in wildlife, wolves were one of the uh, earliest interests that led me into uh, uh, reading uh, scientific journals and articles, books on wolves. In fact, uh, some of my friends called me in my uh, early college years a Dave Meach groupie because I would travel around and, and um, attend Dave Meach's talks. Dave is a, uh, probably the pioneer of wolf research in North America. But at any rate, glad to be here in this capacity, and I, I really think the, the role I fill with the DNR is one that um, uh, is very much in line with my lifelong interest in wildlife. And I think that gives good perspective for people, too. Um, he's a Wisconsin guy, kind of born and raised. Um, as you can tell from him talking about his upbringing background there, you can tell that kind of he just oozes with passion for this type of stuff. And, and you guys should be should be glad that someone like that is, is in that position. I think that's what we ideally try to do with all these physicians. So I guess we'll just get started. So large carnivore ecologist. So we'll... 
I want to ask what does a day in the life look like, but is there maybe a, a bigger picture you can paint as the kind of the role of that position at DNR? Oh, absolutely. I, I think to describe, if I were to describe an, a day in, in the life of Scott Walter, large carnivore ecologist, I'd probably disappoint many of the listeners who view wildlife biologists as spending their time out in the wilds, uh, wrestling deer to the ground, putting radio collars on bears and doing fun things like that. And while that's certainly part of the workload for your average wildlife biologist, my days are, are mainly spent uh, in an office, uh, staring at a laptop, answering the phone. Uh, but it, it really it focuses on communication. That's the I think the, the touchstone of my job as a large carnivore specialist. Um, and what we do within the large carnivore program is essentially that, we communicate. You can think of us maybe as the, the hub on a wheel. There are certainly a lot of folks, as you alluded to, Sawyer, during your introductory comments, who are connected to wolves or the other species in our program, uh, cougars or mountain lions and black bears. Um, they may be farmers who are feeling impacts through something like a, a livestock depredation or a black bear um, feeding on corn in their cornfield. They may be a sportsman for whom black bears are a uh, prize game. They're looking forward to the fall season. Um, they may be a partner group who's got a particular position or passion related to these species. Um, we also, of course, have scientists who are accumulating data and information that feeds the management engine. So uh, my day really consists of sitting there in the hub, gathering information, translating information, and trying to decide how all these viewpoints, all these ideas, perceptions about large carnivores, wolves in particular, should influence um, the way we move forward in terms of the species management. And I think that's a really good example, and hopefully will give people an idea of um, kind of the job that Scott's doing on a daily basis. Like, for example, we have a big game ecologist who does kind of similar things for, for deer and elk, upland bird. So these are kind of the people that are acting as that conduit. And Scott, would you agree that it's kind of biology mixed with sociology? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I might take that idea just a step further. I mentioned that my interests... Um, in wildlife stem from early days spent out in nature. And that's certainly true and uh, it continues to fuel part of my passion today. But I think, you know, over the 20 plus years I've been attached to the wildlife profession in the state of Wisconsin, what I've learned, yeah, two things really. One, um, even though our focus is on wise and sustainable management of our wildlife resources, uh, the important interface is really with the people, the human users the people who drive policy decisions, the people who are also as passionate about these, as these wildlife resources as I am. And the second thing I've learned is I really enjoy that. Of course, when it comes to managing wolves, there are attitudes, opinions, ideas, perceptions all across the map from folks who really love wolves and treasure their role as a member of our wildlife community to people who are, uh, to put it very simply, very fearful of wolves and concerned about the impacts they might have um, on our livestock, on our deer herd, whatever the case may be. But I really enjoy engaging in discussions with those folks and trying to come, if, if possible, to some common view of what the presence of wolves means for Wisconsin. And I think that's another 
another excellent point, and it's it's a theme that we try to bring up as we do these podcasts that as we're sharing this information and we're really, really making a conscious effort to be more proactive um, in sharing this information, we want to give you all the info that you need to learn more, uh, whether you're interested in cougars or wolves or black bears or anything like that. Um, I just think it's a really interesting interplay when you talk about on one side you have the biology and on the other side you have the people who call Wisconsin home. They have pets, they have livestock, uh, they have things like that. So I think that's a really good something for people to keep in mind as, as we keep going through this podcast and all others too. Um, and the other thing is that you're not just managing wolves. So as large carnivore ecologists, I think we would both agree that maybe you could fill 40 hours a week with just managing wolves. But So what, what else kind of goes under your purview as, as large carnivore ecologist? Sure. Uh, the two other species within our program are cougars or mountain lions, pumas. Um, you hear them variously referred to. But uh, in Wisconsin, the one thing I'll say about cougars, they tend to attract a lot of attention. People are very interested when a mountain lion or a cougar shows up in Wisconsin. But the individuals that, that we've confirmed, the cougars we've confirmed in the state, to this point we believe to be all dispersing uh, individuals, probably young males from western populations. We've got genetic data linking at least a few of the cougars in Wisconsin to the Black Hills area of South Dakota. And there's no evidence at this point that we've got breeding activity or an established breeding population of cougars in the state. But still, uh, because they're such a beautiful animal, because they are a large predator, when one, one of those cats does end up walking through the state, we get a lot of uh, mm-hmm. uh, interest and attention. And then the other species uh, in the large carnivore program is the, bla- the black bear. Uh, certainly there's probably no species more enigmatic of the, the north woods of Wisconsin than the black bear. Um, a lot of folks have seen them. We've got 124,000 people uh, putting in for either a preference point or a harvest tag for our, our fall black bear hunt. So it's a very popular game species and it's, it's expanding its range in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. They're now uh, not uncommonly seen in southern counties. And I, th- I think another thing, too, to keep in mind, so I use the upland game bird example where you've got um, species that are managed primarily by, by harvest. So with you, we've got wolves, who are currently a listed species. We've got cougars, who obviously there's no hunt in Wisconsin currently. They tend to pass through. And you've got bears, who we do have a managed harvest. So it's, it's not like they're all kind of in this one silo where they can all be managed with harvest too. So I think that really makes it interesting as well. Yeah, it definitely does. And as you mentioned, although we talk about all three of these species as large carnivores, uh, taxonomically, they're very different. We've got an ursid, we've got a felid, we've got a canid, you know, a bear, a cat, a dog. Um, And their ecology, their life history is quite different as well. And little facets of that life history, little facets of the individual species ecology translate directly into management. You've got to understand uh, the ecology of the species to develop mm-hmm. pr- appropriate population management goals. For example, black bear fecundity is, is relatively low, largely given the fact that uh, sows only breed normally every other year. So if you're going to harvest a species with relatively low reproductive potential, you've got to be very careful that you set quotas and, and 
uh, allowable harvest levels mm -hmm. uh, uh, appropriately. I think that's a perfect segue kind of into what I wanted to cover next. Um, and then before we start getting into kind of history of wolves, current situation um, that the state's in now, uh, kind of where we're going, we want to remind you that the focus of these podcasts and kind of the other things that we're doing is to give you the tools to learn more. Uh, we're not trying to form your opinion. We're simply uh, being proactively kind of sharing the tools for you to learn as you'd like about these species, about cougars, about bears, about things like that. So you had mentioned kind of tools for management and things like that. So Scott, can you just touch briefly? I think people may not be familiar with kind of how the process works on the back end. Obviously they know there are hunting seasons for some species, but they may not be familiar about maybe the public aspect, the, the public input, uh, what's going on with you guys at DNR. So can you kind of touch about tools that DNR staff have kind of to work with the public to manage wildlife? And that would include obviously both game and non-game. So we've got the bear example uh, where you've got the harvest and then you've got someone like something like a wolf where it's going to be obviously very different. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, Probably the foundation of management uh, is the recognition that wildlife's a public resource. By law, it's held in the public trust. Uh, so the public really uh, determines how wildlife should be managed in the state. Um, as specialists, as ecologists, of course, we're responsible for responsible for ensuring that our management actions are sustainable, that things like annual harvests are sustainable. But knowing that wildlife is held in the public trust really puts a lot of the responsibility on the shoulders of individual Wisconsinites, the public. Mm -hmm. And once they realize, if they're passionate about wildlife, that the wildlife belongs to them, I, I'm hopeful that people will take it upon themselves to engage in the, the tools that we provide to allow them to um, provide input. And mm -hmm. we do uh, have uh, input sessions, public input sessions. As we develop management plans for these individual species, we work with advisory committees uh, on which are represented uh, many uh, of the uh, partner groups across the state. And there are just a multitude, multitude of ways that the public can voice their opinions, concerns, or desires related to their favorite wildlife species. Yep, and that's that interplay of biology and sociology kind of intersecting again. I think that's going to be a pretty common theme, especially for this episode. So I'm hoping that gives some perspective. Um, it's not, we're not, they don't go down into a dark basement and spin a wheel to see what the bear quota is, I guess, is the example I would use. Because I think some people just may not be familiar with a lot of those processes. So I would really encourage you um, to learn more about how quotas are set, how it's determined if there's a season and things like that, because I really think that's going to give you a really cool inside look at kind of what it all takes to, to make this one thing happen. So for bears, an example would be to make that hunt happen, to make the quota happen. So, um, and I, Yeah, that's a good point, Sawyer, and i just add that relative to these three species and many others that the DNR manages, we've got just an abundance of information on our website. Uh, each of these species, bears, cougars, and wolves, has a dedicated page on the DNR's website. And in there is just a, an abundance in, of information regarding past harvest levels, but also the process that we engage in to decide what allowable harvest is or other facets of our management. Mm -hmm. 
So I think that's another good segue. So now let's get into kind of gray, wo- gray wolves in Wisconsin in particular. So can you kind of give us the um, kind of square one? What, what's the history of the gray wolf in Wisconsin? Well, part of what attracted me to the large carnivore program was wolves and their emerging uh, history, if I can put it that way, here in Wisconsin. The 30,000-foot the view of wolves it's really a fascinating story, but, and it, it harkens back to our earliest days of statewood, statehood in the 1800s when uh, things were all about westward expansion. Um, the Great Plains, the western states, weren't really settled yet. Uh, pioneers were moving westward in covered wagons, if that brings a, an image to mind. And it was all about essentially dominating nature and converting nature uh, to productive human uses, primarily agriculture, grazing, mining, things like that. But large carnivores, predators like wolves, cougars, and bears were viewed as impediments to that progress. So in the 1800s, well into the 1900s even, just the middle part of the last century, uh, predator control programs, habitat loss, unregulated harvest, just decimated populations of all three of these species. Wolves in particular, uh, even though their original range spanned much of the continent, were pushed to the point and declined to a point where there was really only a remnant population left, a single remnant population in the lower 48 states, and that population persisted uh, in the deep forests of northern Minnesota. They were gone from all states westward of that. Um, but thankfully, I think due to policy shifts, Uh, legislation that was very protective of rare wildlife, notably the Endangered Species Act of 1973, and also, I would say, a shift in uh, public acceptance, public understanding of natural systems, and their willingness to allow uh, large carnivores to to exist. Uh, Following uh, the Endangered Species Act inception in the 70s, we started to see a lot of these populations rebound, Uh, And fairly quickly, in fact, it was 1978 when we started to see signs of wolves recolonizing Douglas County in far northwestern Wisconsin. Uh, So they recolonized, but it's difficult for a small population to take off. There's population inertia. There's annual mortality acting on a relatively small number of individuals. So they struggled struggled along for really uh, 10 or 15 years, and it wasn't until the early 1990s when wolves really started to increase in number. They gained that population inertia and expand in the state. So throughout the 90s and to this point in the 2000s, it's really been uh, a numbers game, watching wolves sort of increase essentially exponentially over the last quarter century or so to the point where they occupy probably the northern third of the state, a belt in the central sands, the uh, central forest region, and then occasionally, of course, individuals disperse elsewhere in the state. But we've got a very healthy population of wolves in Wisconsin now at this point. And if you think about it, regardless of your uh, views toward wolves, if you just think about it in that historical context, we're really immersed in a natural drama that has to do directly with human attitudes toward nature, our impacts on the environment, and really our history here in North America. Yep, I think that's that really paints an interesting picture of kind of how we got to kind of where we're at now. And the other thing 
I wanted to touch on is you mentioned unregulated harvest, which is a theme that was pretty prevalent, like 1800s, early 1900s. We saw it with waterfowl, all types of things. So it's important to realize that regulated harvest can be an extremely kind of beneficial tool that we have in the toolbox for managing species. But this unregulated harvest, you've kind of seen seen the effects that that's had in the past. So I think it's good to keep keep that in perspective that really this is why all this work that we described earlier is going into quotas and going into managing harvest because it, it really is such an important tool kind of that we have. And the other thing I wanted to kind of mention is, so you had mentioned they had more more protections and that, that kind of led to the population increasing. So I think something that's interesting, at least from my viewpoint, is so if we ever got to the point that there were the white-tailed deer were hanging by hanging by an absolute thread in Wisconsin, so probably the first step that a lot of people would take would be to kind of focus on habitat, focus on young forests, things like that. So what what kind of went into efforts for wolves to recover? Is there anything like that you can do for wolves, or is it just kind of a hands-off approach, complete protection? That's a great question, and it really speaks, I think, to how our understanding of wolf habitat and what it what wolves require to persist in a landscape means. Uh, because wolves, as I mentioned, have been pushed into only the most remote wilderness-type uh, habitats that were available, as wildlife ecology developed in the mid-1900s as a discipline, our perception of viable wolf habitat was formed by werewolves were. So we thought wolves were critters of the wilderness, but we didn't realize we had made them that way through really a century of predator control efforts and persecution whenever they stepped out of those wilderness uh, sort of strongholds. But what we've learned since we've taken a more protectionist stance, we've regulated harvest, we've got the Endangered Species Act, is wolves are really a generalist species. They, they do very well in a number of habitats, essentially from desert to mountain to the Arctic tundra. Um, the thing they, there are two things really though that wolves need. They, one, need a healthy ungulate prey base, and by ungulates I mean hoofed mammals, so deer essentially and their relatives, bison in some of the western provinces. Um, so they need a, a ungulate food base. They also need some level of human tolerance. So where wolves interface with humans, that's where that tolerance is important. Because as human densities increase, we've got more people in the woods, we've got more roadways, uh, more, a greater likelihood of wolves dying in car uh, wolf collisions. Uh, we've also got intolerance that may spawn poaching or illegal harvest. And all those things can really serve to limit uh, what viable wolf habitat is. So that was a question I was going to ask. So obviously they need a food source, but if, if there was one type of habitat that would really be ideal for the kind of the, the genus of wolves that we have in Wisconsin, would there be one? Or would you say that it's just they have the ability to move to where the food is and kind of adapt? Well, it's, it's another great question, and it's really at the heart of some of the decisions that the Wisconsin DNR is going to have to work with our partners to make as we decide, we decide how to manage wolves once they're federally delisted. 
Um, given those two conditions for wolf persistence, a healthy prey base and human tolerance, wolves could live anywhere in Wisconsin. They could, they could be in very healthy numbers anywhere in Wisconsin, given our healthy white-tailed deer herd. Uh, the question is, will we tolerate wolves in our backyard in southern Wisconsin? Um, you know, that's a question that I'm asking without an answer, uh, where, but defining where that boundary is between the less populated, more remote northern part of the state and the more agricultural developed and densely populated, human populated southern part of the state, that's really a question that's at the, the crux of wolf management and wolf issues in Wisconsin and many other states. And once again, biology, sociology, kind of crossing crossing right at the X so and that's that's a good example of uh, Scott mentioned that that's a decision that DNR and partners were going to have to make so that's just another example of um, this isn't going to be DNR slamming their fist on the table and saying this is what we're doing uh, there are going to be opportunities for feedback opportunities to sit at the table so uh, we realize too that sociologically Wisconsin is a very diverse state as well you've got the larger cities uh, down south, Milwaukee, Madison, you've got kind of the more the timber areas up north where there's not as many people and, and kind of getting both of those people at the table to kind of meet in the middle and, and, and discuss some of these things I think is going to be extremely, extremely valuable as we move forward in this process. So you, you mentioned movement as well, Scott. So do, do the gray wolves have an the ability to kind of move great distances either in search of food or, or changing something else up? Uh, they do. Um, wolf packs have been uh, um, described as puppy pumps. So a wolf pack uh, generally guards a territory known as its, its range, the pack range. And during the spring breeding season, they produce, of course, young. And there may be four, there may be five, there may be six pups in an, uh, an individual pack's litter. Those pups grow up and most of them will end up dispersing. And whether they're males or females, they can disperse very long distances. We've had a radio collar wolf, uh, collared wolf from the UP of Michigan uh, show up in Missouri. We've had Wisconsin wolves show up in Indiana. Um, various places around the Midwest, and it's, a, again, not uncommon now to see a dispersing wolf here in southern Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. So they do move long distances, and what that means for the population is, you know, they can expand into new range. And again, the question becomes, where do we want them, and where don't we? Mm -hmm. So can you give kind of an example? I, I think we've touched on a lot of really good info at the broad level. So how did we get to where we currently are today. Can you just kind of give out the knockout, the timeline of kind of how we got here? Sure, in terms of wolf numbers, as I mentioned, um, they recolonized Wisconsin, and that's an important point. They recolonized through a natural dispersal from neighboring Minnesota. Uh, the DNR and no other group reintroduced wolves in the state. That's something we hear all the time, but. Uh, the fact is they recolonized like wild populations do. Once they were here, uh, they began to increase notably in the 1990s, and that population increase has continued essentially uh, fairly consistently until the current day. This year's wolf count suggests that that population growth may be slowing down. It's one year of data, but we did see a slight decrease 
in the total number of wolves in the 2017-2018 uh, wolf count. The, in terms of how we got to the current situation um, and our ability to manage our wolf population, it's really critical to understand what the Endangered Species Act has done for wolves. First of all, you asked how did we get here? Protections afforded by the Endangered Species Act allowed wolves to establish an increase throughout the late 70s, throughout the 80s and 90s. The fact that wolves are still listed, even though we've got close to three times as many wolves as um, our, our current um, management goal would specify nearly 10 times as many wolves in the state as the original federal recovery goal would stipulate, uh, suggests that we don't have the flexibility we need to address all the negative mm -hmm. implications of having wolves around. So uh, it's really been somewhat of a, <clears throat> a tennis match or a back and forth situation over the last 12 to 15 years where given the the healthy wolf population wolves would come off the endangered species list. Uh, groups would challenge that. There'd be legal action. Um, a judgment would place them back on. They'd come off. They'd go back on. Um, and why, did, why is that important? Again, the Endangered Species Act has done something great. It's restored a native large carnivore to Wisconsin, allowed numbers to build. But what it does is it handcuffs the state agency and our partners, when we try to address issues like crop or, excuse me, livestock depredations, uh, we're limited in terms of the, the control measures we can enact and work with the landowner to engage in. Mm -hmm. So, and and listed is something, something we're definitely going to touch on as we move forward here, because I think that's going to be helpful for people uh, to hear more about what it actually means to be listed as a species and what that all entails. So, Scott, can you give kind of the current, where are we at right now um, population-wise with gray wolves in Wisconsin? Sure, so uh, each year better than a hundred citizen scientists, I like to call them, or volunteers assist DNR staff with uh, essentially surveying our, our wolf population. Uh, they're assigned tracking units uh, and they go out into those units via vehicle when there's uh, suitable tracking conditions in the winter, snow cover, etc. They identify wolf tracks, they try to estimate how many individuals are in that pack, and we've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 160 or 170 tracking blocks that cover the northern and central uh, parts of the state. So that data is all summarized and combined with other data, say from public reports, somebody sees a wolf and it's confirmed maybe in a county where we didn't know we had wolves, um, investigations of livestock depredations, flights by our DNR pilots where we've got a radio collared wolf and he can fly, locate that animal and count the, uh, the members of that pack. All that data comes together and forms our midwinter minimum wolf population count. We know it's a minimum count because all wildlife populations are at their lowest level in the winter. When spring comes, the breeding season, this summer there will be more wolves than that. But this year, um, the count told us there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 905 to 944 wolves. And as I mentioned, wolves for about the last 25 years have been increasing fairly consistently. There was a dip 
in 2012, 13, and 14, when we wolves were delisted during that period, we could have a harvest. But aside from those three years, we've seen really nothing but population growth. This year, about a 2% decrease in terms of the number of wolves seen as, as compared to last year. Does that mean wolves are stabilizing or leveling off? We'll have to wait another year or two to see if that continues. But at any rate, that's we've got about 900 plus wolves in the state right now. So as a reminder for people tuning in, we're with Scott Walter, the DNR large carnivore ecologist. We're talking gray wolves in Wisconsin. We've already touched on the history, uh, kind of recovery, recovery efforts, how we got here. So he had just mentioned uh, kind of overwinter estimates. Scott, can you explain for someone listening, why would we want the number of when they're at their lowest? Well, it's really um, due to the opportunity to effectively identify and count wolves. In the winter, of course, uh, the woods are a little more open, but the key is that snow on the ground allows very effective trapping, or, excuse me, tracking. Um, if you think about going out into the northern forest in the middle of the summer and trying to count wolves or even locate a wolf pack, um, it's going to be more difficult. We do do some additional surveys called howl surveys during the summer where an individual will howl and hoping that the local pack will howl back. And they, they use those surveys to identify pups to see which packs are, are breeding. But the reason we do these um, population counts in the winter is simply because that's the best time of year to count wolves. So you mentioned volunteers. We're going to touch on them um, a little bit later. But can you kind of walk someone through what a day of kind of that overwinter tracking would look like, kind of process-wise? Yeah, it's... Uh, uh, great fun. It's uh, uh, The North Woods any time of year is, of course, a great place to be, but um, following a, a snowfall that provides a nice track bed, individuals will go out into these tracking units. Uh, they'll have maps with them. They've got some data sheets, and you'll simply drive these uh, remote forest roads, in most cases, looking for tracks. And, of course, you're going to see tracks from fishers and deer and a lot of other wildlife but when you identify a track as a canid and large enough uh, to be a wolf, uh, usually these wolves are traveling together uh, in packs. You identify, first of all, the location, the direction of travel, and then how many animals were in the pack. Um, and by covering the northern and central parts of the state, as we do in compiling that data, uh, you can get a fairly complete count of wolf distribution and wolf numbers in this state. So we get the data um, through various means, as Scott had mentioned. So how is that data used? I know we're, it's kind of unique right now due to the species being listed, but so how do you, as the large carnivore ecologist, use that data? Well, it allows us to track the wolf population uh, and that is important if, if you recall our earlier discussion about the federal status of wolves. They're currently listed under the Endangered Species Act. To delist the wolves so that the state can resume management authority, we've got to show that we have a healthy wolf population here. And the way we show that is through these monitoring data. So they provide a, a very important tool that hopefully in the near term will support uh, a delisting, a successful delisting effort. The second reason these data are so critical, when we resume um, state management authority and we determine 
some of these basic things. How many wolves do we want? Where do we want them? Um, we've got to implement, implement by state statute a wolf harvest season. And when we implement that, we need to know very, very finely how many wolves we can harvest yet remain at or very close to our management goal. So there's really two very important facets and uses for those monitoring data. So another question I was going to ask a bit earlier when we were talking about kind of current population levels, um, and it's important for listeners to kind of keep in perspective that uh, kind of the stabilization when we say that it's just a very fine snapshot and kind of the bigger picture. But can you offer maybe some thoughts about what potentially could could lead to stabilization? You've, we've seen a lot of years of steady growth. Um, so maybe if you could touch on what, what could lead to growth versus what could lead to kind of stabilization? Yeah, that's a great question. And it, uh, it relates to a lot of the perceptions, I think, about what population growth means for wolves in Wisconsin. Uh, fundamentally, you have to understand a little bit about wolf ecology. Their social structure is built around this idea of a pack, which is an adult male and adult female, and maybe they're, they're year-old or possibly they're two-year-old two pups. Okay? Average pack size in Wisconsin is about four individuals. Those four wolves or that pack defends the territory, and they don't allow any other wolves in that area. What that means is wolf densities are limited. It'll, the size of that ter territory may increase or decrease based on deer abundance, prey abundance, um, but in general, wolf densities are going to be limited by this uh, social, social structure of wolves and the antagonism between adjacent wolf packs. So you can't have you know, too many wolves in an area. That social tension sort of sets uh, an upper limit to wolf densities. Why we've seen this increase over 25 years in wolf numbers is largely due to range expansion. Wolves started in the northwestern few counties, spread across north central Wisconsin, sort of slowly into northeast Wisconsin, southward, uh, with a limit now maybe about Wausau. Um, so population increases are largely due to range expansion with wolves. If you live in Ashland County, you don't have any more wolves in your neighborhood than you did probably 15 or 20 years ago. The increase, the added wolves are due to the fact the species has expanded its range. So, and you, you mentioned range too. Is there any type of connection there as to how the tracking grids are set up? Mm -hmm. Is that is that related to range or habitat? Or You mentioned earlier that um, volunteers and DNR staff set up kind of this grid system. Can you kind of backtrack a little bit and explain kind of how those grids are chosen? Yeah. Um, basically, the monitoring program has evolved with wolf range expansion uh, to, to ensure that all occupied wolf range is being sampled. Um, we certainly recognize that there are uh, maybe some packs out there that aren't in uh, wolf tracking block. There may be some lone wolves, some dispersers that aren't accounted for in the survey, but by and large, uh, where we've got established wolf populations, we're conducting these surveys and we're picking up the, the packs and the wolves that are there. So so there's definitely a, a rhyme to the reason as far as we're definitely being smart about 
how the grid system set up, being sure that we use the resources that we have, both DNR staff and volunteer wisely, to kind of make it as efficient of a process as possible. And we also would like to take an opportunity to thank anyone who has volunteered with that program. Um, obviously, you look at that grid on the map, that's covering a very, very large portion of the state where, where there are wolves. So um, it's something we couldn't do without volunteer help. So it's, it's really crucial. And I think it really gives them an interesting kind of stake in the game and management too, which I think is another interesting thing to kind of mention. They're, they're playing a direct role in the management of, of a very kind of popular species in a, in a state that's known for its outdoor resources. So I think just an incredible incredible opportunity to get involved. Um, you can go on our website, um, volunteer, or look up keywords wolf tracking and kind of find more info on that. So if anyone's interested, whether whether you're a hunter or, or anything else, um, I mean, this is going to be interesting to, to everyone. Yeah, and I, I'd uh, um, repeat that comment about the value of our wolf tracking volunteers. Again, there's better than 100 citizens of the state who are passionate enough about wolves to hop in a truck, hop in a car, and uh, go out when it may be 20 below zero and spend a day, spend many days uh, covering these tracking blocks. Uh, if folks do go online and read the summary of this year's uh, wolf monitoring uh, effort, there are important numbers in there. Certainly the 905 to 944 wolves number is what folks will, will focus on, but to me, one of the most amazing numbers is the 16,133 miles that were driven by DNR staff trackers and volunteers. I mean, if you think about it, that's, that's driving from Wisconsin to Los Angeles and back four times, and that's what our, our staff trackers and volunteers have done for us, and really, you can't thank them enough because without those efforts, we don't have a mechanism right now to to I estimate the number of wolves in the state. Mm -hmm. So just a really important tool um, and really important public-private partnership that, that we use each year to kind of directly impact management. So kind of shifting gears a little bit here, uh, we've talked about the timeline of, of how we got here. I think Scott's done a really good job of, of walking through those steps. And a term we've used a few times um, is listed. So the gray wolf is is currently listed so Scott can you can you explain kind of what that means both from a management standpoint and just on a broader scale kind of what that all entails for a species yep well listed means that a species is uh, afforded the protections of the Federal Endangered Species Act the Endangered Species Act has a uh, a pretty interesting and rich history, but essentially the, the current version of that law was passed in 1973 and affords uh, rare species, uh, species that may be moving toward uh, extinction protections, um, such that they can't be harvested, any other take, as it's called, is prohibited, uh, habitats need to be conserved and protected. Um, so listing again on the Endangered Species Act allows, does a wonderful thing, it's a great piece of legislation, it allows populations at low points to recover and it really it gives conservationists, wildlife biologists time to protect habitats, to consider what sort of management actions might be 
uh, need to be taken to protect the species from extinction. Um, but once a population has recovered, like wolves across the upper Great Lakes states by any reasonable biological measure have, it's time to take them off the list so that they can be managed with other concerns in mind. For example, wolves in Wisconsin occasionally prey on livestock. Uh, multiple dozen livestock are killed uh, each year here in Wisconsin. We work with partners at USDA Wildlife Services to address those issues, and there are, are certainly non-lethal uh, things that can be done. Flagging can be erected around pastures, guard animals can be put into place, but oftentimes uh, trapping or lethal control of those uh, problem wolves, those depredating wolves, is important. We can't utilize those lethal control measures when, the, when wolves are listed. So on the tail end of recovery here, I think it's important that wolves be delisted so that the state can engage in really a holistic management strategy and try to uh, address some of these other issues. So can you, can you maybe touch on the difference? So you mentioned holistic management strategy versus the management that we see through a species being listed? Yeah, so by holistic, I mean just having all the management tools uh, in our arsenal that, that are available, including lethal control. So um, say you're a dairy farmer in um, Price County and you lose a heifer to wolves, right now there are things that can be done to try to mitigate that, to try to keep that from happening. First of all, um, the DNR's got a, a compensation payment program, so you you'll be reimbursed or compensated for the loss of that animal if it can be confirmed that a wolf was, was responsible. With wolves on the endangered species list, however, um, what the farmer can do is implement non-lethal control measures. Again, a certain type of flagging known as fladry, maybe some uh, motion-activated lights, uh, guard animals, donkeys, dogs, what have you. Um, but you cannot set traps, you cannot uh, provide the landowner a shooting permit uh, to target and lethally control the, the offending or the depredating animal, um, which is effective. So when wolves are listed, it limits our ability to address these, you know, I think, very serious issues for mm -hmm. farmers in the state. And when we mention lethal control, too, I think it's important to keep in mind that that's not, that's not to say that every time there's an issue, lethal control would be pursued. It's just, like Scott mentioned, the holistic approach. It's one tool that DNR staff, USDA, have kind of at their disposal to do their best to kind of manage these problems on a kind of a case-by-case -case basis. So the more management tools you can kind of have at your disposal, uh, more often than not, the more effective kind of those activities are going to be. Yeah, and I sort of to paint that with a little broader brush, um, I think we need to recognize that we're still learning to live with wolves. You know, our, our relationship is evolving, as my wife occasionally tells me, right? Um, and delisting, right now wolves are protected. For folks that favor the presence of wolves in Wisconsin, that might seem like the best thing because they can't be harvested. They can't be 
um, lethally controlled. They can't be killed. Um, but delisting does not mean that things are going to go haywire with the wolf population. What it means is the DNR can again work with partners to establish goals for the population like we do with every other wildlife population. And we can implement management actions to achieve those goals, right? So we're always going to have wolves in Wisconsin. We're always going to have a healthy population um, that's going to persist. But delisting allows us to address some of these tangential uh, negative impacts that stem from the presence of wolves in the state. So I think that was a really good overview of kind of what, what it means for a species to be listed versus state management. Um, and we really want you to keep that perspective in mind, too, we mentioned with lethal control. Um, state management isn't the state saying, oh, we just want to have a wolf hunt. Oh, absolutely Because not. I, I yeah. think that's the perception that is, is probably held by quite a few people. So can you kind of touch on, touch on that a little bit? Yeah. You know, again, I'm, a, I'm an advocate for wildlife. I, I think all the sportsmen, outdoorsmen, the bird watchers, the folks who spend time outside with binoculars, kayaks, guns, it doesn't matter. The, the folks that appreciate our wildlife resource understand to some extent that there's value in having wolves in Wisconsin. Um, as a top carnivore, it may produce, by some measures, a healthier ecosystem, right? But I, I think it's critical that we understand that um, management of these populations, especially when there's a species like wolves uh, that has negative uh, impacts on humans or human uses, that, that we engage in appropriate management. Well said. So we're getting close to kind of wrapping up at the end here, but something I wanted to save for the end, just because I actually really like saying this word, is wolves are a charismatic megafauna. <laughs> Say it with me, charismatic megafauna. And that's something we, we mentioned quite a bit, and I really think it makes management of a species like this really interesting because once again it's that sociology biology interplay so can you talk kind of from your desk uh you're in the hot seat so how does how do the social aspects like that being a charismatic megafauna affect managing a species in in wisconsin in particular well by charismatic megafauna uh you can think of a lot of a different species. Giraffes are charismatic megafauna, right? But uh, wolves are living with us here in Wisconsin. They're in our backyard. And as large predators, again, they do have impacts. Uh, livestock depredations being one that, that I've mentioned. So um, in terms of the, the biology, sociology, or the wolf public interface, that's where my job gets very interesting because um, the way people respond to wolves varies. It's all across the map. Uh, there are folks that would just as soon wolves be allowed to do whatever they want, to expand into southern Wisconsin, to uh, occur wherever, at whatever number uh, nature sort of dictates. And there are others that would just as soon wolves went back to Minnesota, to be frank with you, because mm -hmm. they're perhaps feeling the negative impacts um, on their farms. So the, the job we have with the DNR, um, and I'm looking forward to these discussions uh, upon federal delisting is to bring these groups together and understand wolves are here to stay. There are reasons 
that wolves are going to be part of our fabric here in Wisconsin, hopefully for many generations to come. But that does not mean that they need necessarily to be given a free ride. We have got to make decisions that are both best for wolves and best for the, the people, the humans, that share the landscape with, with wolves. So it, uh, uh, these discussions will pick up as we craft our wolf management plan subsequent to a, a successful delisting effort. But I'm really looking forward to it. I, I recognize that the views are all over the map, but I really encourage people, regardless of how you view wolves, how your background has led you to view wolves, to understand that other people with other backgrounds or maybe different interactions with nature uh, or wolves, they, they're going to have very different points of view. And we've got to appreciate those differences if we're going to come to some common understanding of the future of wolves in Wisconsin. And I think a really good first step, you mentioned common understanding, which I think is going to be absolutely key, is um, I've mentioned our website. We've both mentioned the website. There's a lot of really helpful info there. Um, and we're not saying anyone's right. We're not saying anyone's wrong. We're just we're hoping to point you in the direction of some information that um, I would say people on both sides of the table, you, it may change your perspective. Um, it may strengthen it. That's going to be kind of a case-by-case -case issue of how, of how you handle the issue. But um, the information is out there. And no one will deny kind of the social issues that have clouded um, the wolf issue. We see it every day. Um, for instance, we did a Facebook Live this morning, um, and we're seeing all different types of comments. There are times where we'll post a picture of a sandhill crane and someone will make a comment about a wolf. It's just become so, so prevalent. Um, and some of them are misinformed, some of them aren't. Uh, but we're just hoping that everyone kind of keeps that perspective. There are people with, with other viewpoints. It's important that, that you use the information, that everyone's using the same information. I think that's really important too. So, so what's next, Scott? What is one or two years down the road, what do you see as kind of the next steps here? Well, again, with wolves on the uh, endangered species list federally, uh, our role really is to continue to monitor wolves. So we'll continue to put radio collars out. We'll continue to work with volunteers and our DNR staff trackers to uh, count wolves, do our, our monitoring each winter. Um, hope, hopeful that in the near term, those data will be used to support a, de a successful delisting effort. Uh, and once wolves are delisted, management authority reverts to the state of Wisconsin. And then we get to plug in with all these partners I've been talking about and make uh, the hard decisions about how we want wolves to be managed in Wisconsin. And again, I re I'm really looking forward to the process. So before we wrap up here, um, a question I like to ask the guests on here is kind of, in regard to gray wolves in Wisconsin, what is one thing that you could tell someone regarding wolves in Wisconsin? Maybe it's uh, hypothetically it's someone on the street who has no idea about any of the situation, maybe not familiar with uh, conservation in Wisconsin or even wolves in Wisconsin, but what's one thing that you would tell them if you had the opportunity? Me? I, I would tell folks that they're a native part of our wildlife community. And uh, the fact that they're back in our north woods and back in our central forests uh, 
Um, to me, it rounds out our uh, wildlife community and it, in a very, very broad sense, suggests that we've got a landscape that can support a top carnivore. Um, there's five point whatever million people in Wisconsin. The fact that I think we can coexist with wolves is a wonderful testament to the way our relationship with nature in general has evolved. Mm-hmm. Is that one thing? That's I'm going to technically <laughs> consider that one thing. Um, so the other thing, uh, do you have any closing thoughts before we start to wrap up here? I th- we've covered a lot, and I think wolves in particular and large carnivores are a topic that we're, I hope to do many more podcasts kind of as we move forward in the timeline or maybe covering other species. But do you have any closing thoughts before we wrap up? Well, I guess I'd just say that uh, as folks hear about wolves on the radio, read about wolves, um, take the big, you know, it, it's very easy to revert to uh, perceptions, opinions, positions um, that you've heard or maybe that have been emphasized by family, friends, whatever, but just try to think about the big picture. You know, what what does the presence of wolves mean in Wisconsin? Form your own view and, and feel free to share it through the Conservation Congress, through a direct call to a DNR staff person to me, um, so that, you know, as we move forward with wolf management, we can better understand what the people of Wisconsin would like to see. Mm-hmm. And a, a phrase we use quite often, too, is we're all in this together. You mentioned the Conservation Congress, public input opportunities, um, DNR staff absolutely being open to to working with the public on any number of things. you got county deer advisory councils, you got management plans, master plans. So I would really encourage you to look at ways that you can become involved. Maybe you start, um, you may not know anything about wolves, and decide you want to give volunteer tracking a try. So there are just so many opportunities to, to become involved. Uh, you can find more info on the website, dnr.wi.gov, uh, keyword wolf. That's going to put you in touch with tons of links for tons of information. Um, the overwinter population status data that Scott mentioned, that's going to be there as well. Uh, so thanks again for joining us. Um, I thought this was really a fun one. I'm excited for people to, to listen to this and get some perspective. Uh, you can find this podcast and all the other ones um, at dnr.wi.gov, keywords Wild Wisconsin. Um, always we put them on our YouTube channel, which is TV, and also our iTunes channel, which is brand new. I think that's going to be really popular with people. So whether you're listening on your commute uh, or at work or anything like that, be sure to clear that with your boss, by the way. But Check out our social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, we're really making a conscious effort to, to get people like Scott out in front of the public sharing this information. Um, so there couldn't be a better guy for the job, and I think we're really going to see that shine through as we move through this timeline that we discussed. So thanks for joining us, and stay tuned for another episode of the DNR Wild Wisconsin Off the Record podcast.